ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history. A giant road this week of wrestling history. And of course, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the legendary Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brian. Uh, Happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to, to saddling them up and uh, see if we can't take them on a good ride today. Well, I think we're going to have a good ride. I think we're going to have a giant size ride, if I haven't teased that enough already at the start of the show. But real quick here at the top, first of all, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for sitting in for me last week. I thought he did a dynamic job, and Lou is, of course, a major part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I really appreciate his help last week in producing the show and, of course, co-hosting the show with you. And also, I want to make mention of the latest Super Studcast. Parts 1 and 2 are now available. Super Studcast number 23 with Dr. Tom Pritchard. This is a great three hours of classic wrestling talk. Everything from Continental to Houston wrestling to Smoky Mountain wrestling to getting in the ring with Vince McMahon. Check it out today at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only two ninety nine gets you in the door we'll have more about that later in the show but ron where are we going to this week on this show the studcast well brian this week we're going to wrestle with the giant on the second straight coliseum show of november 1975 Uh, this event also we gave away a thousand free pictures of andre for kids 16 and under Uh, plus it had two distinctly different types of matches for the first time in southeastern wrestling history on this same card of November 14, 1975. The first of those two was a two-ring but triple-chance battle royal, and the second was the first-ever lights-out match for Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, we'll discuss the card, obviously, like always, uh, the TV show that promotes that card, the results and the payoffs in this program, and this episode is going to include several live actual audio clips from the tremendous TV show of Saturday, November 15th. We're going to run... Only one city other than Knoxville during this the course of this week, Johnson City, Tennessee. And uh, it was then running every Tuesday night anyway in the Tri-City area of Kingsport, Bristol, and Johnson City. And we'll finish up today with another great Andre story that just happened to happen on this run that Andre comes through. So uh, 
We'll just jump right in, my man, if you're sorry with you. Uh, let's start Friday morning, uh, November 14, 1975. I picked up Andre the Giant to Knoxville Airport. He greeted me with one of those giant-sized hugs. Uh, you know, I want to shake hands with him. He shook hands, and then he hugged me. You know, he hugged me like we were lifelong friends. And uh, at this point, I'm beginning to be really a, a tremendous friend with Andre. First thing I asked him was where he wanted to stay. And he didn't hesitate to tell me, saying, uh, I want to stay where I did last time, Ron. He said, I really liked it, and uh, they took good care of me. So, uh, I, and I kind of figured that in advance. I'd already talked to the people at the same hotel, uh, and they were glad to see him. It was the perfect place for Andre. It had a bar and a nightclub. It was adjoining the hotel. And the hotel part of the complex, like he said, took great care of him the first time he came. And uh, they were happy to have him back when I talked to the manager about it. And they should have been, because he's probably spent $400 at the bar. <laughs> taking care of the tab for not just himself, his 115 cans of beer, but uh, other wrestlers' beer that were hanging out at the same time. So now that Andre is settled in and happy, let's take a look at the great card for the Knoxville Coliseum on November 14, 1975. Uh, this huge event included eight matches in all. Don Wright opened the night against the Inferno. Les Thatcher wrestled the legendary Sputnik Monroe. From a giant to midgets, this night had it all. There was ladies' midget match with Darling Dagmar and Marie Laveau. Andre the Giant in a handicap match against two big opponents that barely outweighed him by only 100 pounds. And one of those opponents was 300-pound Tony Peters and 282-pound Don Lambert. So <laughs> these were two big boys, and they, they still weren't much bigger than Andre in weight. Uh, there's also a return of a Southern heavyweight championship match between champion Bob Armstrong and Tommy Sigler. Uh, Robert and myself faced Rock Hunter and a member of his army, Norvell Austin. So that's a basic card. And uh, add to that the first ever Southeastern two-ring triple chance battle royal with $7,000 going to the winners. For those that have never seen this type of battle royal, I'd like to explain how it works uh, Fans arrived at the Coliseum. They're surprised to, to see the first thing they saw is these two 20-foot square rings sitting side by side, touching each other, apron to apron, in the middle of the downstairs ringside floor of the Coliseum, which was a huge floor area. It fit perfectly, those two rings down there. Wrestlers would move from one ring to another in these two ring battle royals until the battle royal would fill both rings. The rules were that everybody started in ring one. To be eliminated from ring one, you had to be thrown over the top rope on any side of the ring. And when that happened, you had to leave ring one, get into ring two, and continue to stay in that ring as the battle royal starts in that ring when you, two people get in there. So this was what was called chance one. That's why they call it a triple chance. That's chance one. That's because you have to be eliminated from ring one. And if you were eliminated from one, you've lost one of your three chances to win. Eliminations were then occurring in both rings as the contestants in ring one continued to be thrown out. And the second ring has a battle royal going and contestants are being thrown out of that at the same time. To me, this was the, maybe the best part of the two-ring battle war because fans had a difficult time watching all the excitement with two rings all going at it at the same time. The last two wrestlers in ring one stayed in ring one by themselves until everyone in ring two was thrown out except for the last two in that ring. 
being eliminated entirely from ring two was the second chance that you lost at getting the battle as winning the battle royal. And if you'd been thrown over the top rope in both rings, you went to the dressing room. The night was over for you. At that point, you'd been totally eliminated. Then the two winners of the ring two got in the ring one to face the two winners in that ring. And that's why they called it the triple chance. The third chance is there's a tag match, and whoever wins that tag match, those two people split that prize money. It sometimes provided fans with an unusual pairing of partners for the tag match part of it. Lots of times it end up with a baby face and a heel in that ring, and they're going to be partners in the tag. So uh, it was a tremendous type of battle royal that had so many different facets to it. It really, really, uh, just fans really were, were blown away by it. The winners of the tag match split the pies money, obviously. The first Southeastern two-ring triple chance had a $7,000 prize to be split between the winners of the tag match. And it included every wrestler on the card except two that were in the last match. And obviously, there was midgets on this card, and they are not in the battle royal. So this type of battle royal was extremely popular wherever we had them Southeastern wrestling, as long as we had them. When was the first time you saw a two-ring battle royal? I was in the first two-ring battle royal in Memphis, probably in 1970, maybe. Uh, yeah, 70 or 71 at the latest. And I was I was really and it was enthusiastic to be in that battle royal uh, and to watch it and to be in it and be part of it. It just uh, it it really was a a great event and the fans just went crazy. Memphis, I guess everywhere you ever had a two-ring battle royal, fans really, really got into it. It was just well put together, well thought out concept. I'm not sure who came up with it. I have a feeling it might have been Jerry Jarrett that came up with it. But I don't know that it started with Jerry, but that's the first time I was ever in one. And then one other question before you tell us about the final match, Ron. Andre the Giant, he's not in there against a main eventer. He's not in there against a tag team, a recognized tag team. He's in there against two big guys, but not meaning to insult them. Tony Peters and Don Lambrick are not exactly main event guys in Southeastern. What was the philosophy behind booking Andre against them? Was it just that Andre's enough of an attraction? I don't need to have him at this point in time in a match against someone he would you know, have a program with on TV or anything else? Well, I wasn't lucky enough to get him on TV. Uh, you know, Vince was uh, keeping him uh, out to other promotions as much as he could, running him around the country as much as he could. Uh, before it's all over with Southeastern, Vince will become comfortable enough with me to let me keep him for three or four days and use him on television. And that really makes a difference in the promotion and the difference in the crowd when you can get him on your television. But I wasn't able to do it at this point. So... Uh, and then uh, I really didn't have a competitor for him, uh, a single guy in my territory that was anywhere near as big as Andre. I felt like giving him these two guys and the two big guys, they at least had an opportunity to see him in something other than just a battle royal. And that's really the reason I wanted to put him on the card and let them see him wrestle by himself and not in a battle royal. So he was a big enough attraction that you didn't need to have him at this point in time, because later on you would have him in big matches against Ron Garvin, for instance. That's one of the ones people still remember and talk about to this day. He was enough of an attraction just coming into town as the giant that you could put him in there against anybody? Yes. You know, I mean, he, he was he was the uh, the card that night. He's the man that night. 
anytime Andre was on the card, I don't think it was ever anybody on the card that I ever worked that was bigger than Andre, literally, not only in size, but in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in his ability to do what he do does and, uh, to draw fans, you know, Andre was just a tremendous talent, uh, uh, and, and he was, he was, he was of, of a stature that no other wrestler I ever saw could, could match Andre's stature and obviously his size. And, uh, I felt like, uh, you know, that I needed to put him in a match this time and let somebody see him other than just being in the battle royal. And they had a pretty decent match, but obviously I didn't, I didn't care if Andre went very long. I told him that, you know, he actually went out and, and, and put together some high spots and things and had a pretty decent match with those guys. Uh, I, because I think Andre really, really enjoyed coming to Knoxville. And as time goes by here, he's going to get to where he loves it to the, to the point that he's asking Vince to let him come here, let him come to Southeastern, spend more time here. And I think that's why Vince let me have him for two or three, four days at a time later on. So what was the final match on the show in Knoxville, Ron? Well, the final match uh, was the first ever uh, Southeastern Lights Out match. Uh, and I got this idea from obviously from my time in Florida. It's the first place I'd ever seen Lights Out matches. And I had Lights Out matches there before I came to Southeastern to start the company. Now, these matches had simple rules. They were designed to end feuds after every other type of match had been used. They were always violent, basically no rules and used ordinarily to finish long programs between two guys that hated each other. They began with the bell and the announcer making a special announcement, and in, in this case, announcer Phil Rainey got in the ring at the end of the night by himself and said something like this. Ladies and gentlemen, the next event is a no-time limit, no-disqualification, NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match. This match is, uh, is sanctioned by Southeastern Championship Wrestling, which is a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, we will now turn down the house lights to signify the match is not approved by the National Wrestling Alliance and is not a part of, the, of, of this event in their eyes. Fans may leave the arena at this time or witness a non-sanctioned NWA match if they so choose. The building was darkened for almost uh, totally back for about 10 seconds. Fans cheered when the lights went out and again when the lights came up. It happened every lights-out match I was ever in. Phil Rainey introduced the first contestant, the assassin who entered the ring to a tremendous roar of disapproval by the crowd. He then introduced fan favorite Ron Wright to a standing ovation. The building was just slightly more than half full, but it sounded totally full. Phil then made another announcement. He announced that the next Friday night, Southeastern Wrestling would return to the Coliseum. I was happy to hear the crowd's booming reaction to that announcement. He then said, we're very happy to announce that the next Friday's main event will be an NWA World Championship match with champion Jack Briscoe. Another great response from the crowd. I loved that, too. He continued. Although the National Wrestling Alliance has not sanctioned this event, they have decided the winner of tonight's Lights Out match will get the shot at the world title next Friday. Boy, the roof came off on that one. Uh, you know, there's Ron Wright. He's an old favorite there anyway. You know, they all then uh, were going to really be cheering for Wright to get that title shot. It was, a, it was about as good a way to get a match started as possible. Uh, we will discuss the results of this match and the others later in the studcast 
after we talk about the TV show on Saturday, November 8th, six days prior to this card that we now have just described. Uh, the opening match on that team was a great one. As the ring announcer, Phil Rainey, introduced the two guys in the ring, Rick Connors and DeVoy Brunson. Then Norvell Austin and Rock Hunter came into the studio, and a fairly quiet beginning to the show ended quickly. The crowd really exploded in booze for them and didn't slow down until Hunter and Austin defeated their opponents. Austin won it when they got rid of Rick Connors by throwing him out on the floor. Then Hunter fired Brunson into the ropes. As Norvell took off running the opposite direction into the ropes, and when he came off the ropes and Brunson's already coming, Hunter moved out of the way, and Austin hit him with that big flying headbutt. And Austin's really moving at this point. Uh, so it looked like it took DeVoy's Brunson head off at regular speed. The instant replay looked just as convincing because you could see Brunson's head snap back during the collision. Both Hunter and Norvell were overstrong, but Norvell had even more heat than Hunter, I think. I was happy with that. Since the Assassin only had one more Coliseum show, and Hunter's going to be gone in less than three weeks, too. So uh, I need to get some heels over here, and Norvell is uh, starting to get to where he needs to be. They both went to the set with Les and watched the Brass Nucks title match from the Coliseum the night before. It showed Robert getting involved and helping Ron Wright steal the Brass Nucks championship from Hunter. That's the way Hunter described it anyway. He stole it from him. Both Hunter and Norvell couldn't wait to get their hands on the Fuller brothers, as they said in their interview. And uh, they're talking about the next Friday night and their match with us. Then in a huge battle royal, Hunter talked about getting rid of Andre. After the commercial break and in the actual interview, mostly Hunter talked about his loss of his championship the giant and the assassin may be getting suspended because of what happened in the last match from the week before. I'm very happy to say we have that original interview as it was recorded on Saturday, November 8th, 1975. Uh, this is going to be Rock Hunter, and uh, he's going to be uh, talking with a lot of confidence. And uh, that's how he got his heat. And I'd like to thank the Hills Brothers out of Knoxville, Tennessee, for this tremendous audio from 44 years ago. And uh, if you'd like to, Brian, uh, let's go ahead and listen to it. Just a minute. Just a minute, Thatcher. I think I've warned you before. Don't dig into the tactics or anything else about the Rock Hunter organization. It's not healthy. Let's take things in the order of their importance. Now, you saw what happened. As I've said to you before, I don't expect you to be impartial, but just be fair. There was definitely outside interference on the part of Robert Fuller that cost me a title. Now, I have myself to blame because I didn't pay attention to the advice of a good, loyal, and trusted friend and gentleman, Norvell Austin. He said... Look for two-on-one because down here that southern hillbilly fun. And he was right. I wasn't looking and I got it. But uh, now let's go back to something of great importance to the Rock Hunter organization. This battle royal with this tremendous prize at stake. Well, everyone says that giant is the master of a battle royal simply because of his size. But what you're going to see is the Rock Hunter organization take him and throw him so far out of that ring that no one will be able to find him. 
assassin? How about this lights out match? Once again, how about the assassin? How about Now, the let me tell you once and for all about the assassin, and I've said, don't dig into the tactics of the Rock Hunter organization. It's not your business. It's not anyone's business. And do I make myself clear? Well, the thing is clear, this will be a great card Friday night, Knoxville, Civic Coliseum. The second TV match was another recent newcomer that was already getting over in just his second week on TV, Don Carson. He wrestled a future star for Southeastern and Continental Wrestling, Jerry Stubbs, the future Mr. Olympia. Jerry had not been working long at this point, but he would had great wrestling skills, and he and Carson did a lot of wrestling, switches, takedowns, and chain moves. I love that about Carson. He could do some wrestling if he wanted to. Uh, he certainly did a great job in this match and won again, without loading his glove. And that's another thing I wanted to accomplish with him. I didn't want him to have to use his glove to win for the first month or so. I asked myself, if I could get big heat on him without use of the glove, how much heat can I get when he has to use it to win? And uh, he also buzzed me after the match that the new kid, he called him Jerry Stubbs, was going to be very good. Well, I could see that myself, but I was really encouraged by the comments from older stars in my crew about the talent I was using. To me, it was kind of like getting a second opinion from, from another doctor. You know, uh, Carson joined Les at the set after the match to watch the five-minute challenge match he and Robert had the night before after they had both already worked on the card. Carson made a challenge on the TV show two weeks earlier to Robert that he would give him 500 if he couldn't beat Rob in five minutes. The video showed Rob staying out of the ring and making Carson chase him. Carson accused my brother of being a coward. Well, we'll hear Robert's explanation of his tactics in another audio clip later in the show. The personality profile, let's just jump into that, was live for the first time. Ron Wright and I talked about the hugely controversial main event the night before with my hair against the mass of the assassin and the upcoming lights out match for Wright and the assassin. I described the extremely unique finish that I'd come up with on the last stud cast. Briefly, I beat him with my fuller leg lock, but when he refused to re remove his mask, we started fighting again and the assassin and I collided coming off the ropes. He grabbed a headlock on me. I shot him in the ropes. We collided. He went out on the floor backwards and I flew back into the referee who was standing behind me, knocking him down as well. All three of us were down. Hunter ran to the ring with another assassin that looked almost exactly like the real one. He then quickly helped the real assassin back to the dressing room with him while the ref and I were still down. Now, I never saw it. The ref never saw it. The fake assassin got in the ring, laid down before either the ref or I got up crowd was going crazy because they'd seen the switch, but neither the ref or I had seen it. When I got up, I picked him up and put the fuller leg lock on him again. <laughs> I didn't know he wasn't the real assassin, and this time I held on to it. When I put the, the fuller leg lock on the first assassin, he'd been in that hole before. My dad had put it on him, and he started screaming, gave up instantly. This time I had the opportunity to put the fake one in that hole and really put some pressure on it. Uh, when I let the hole go, finally, the ref and I took the, took his mask off. He didn't even fight it. He was screaming. He was he was ready to get out of the ring. The fans had been very loud all night. They reached their highest level as we started to leave the ring. Uh, obviously, by the time I got to the dressing room, hundreds of fans had told me what actually happened. The video that we showed during this profile 
of this controversial match was beautiful. Coliseum crowd was so loud during the finish, you couldn't hear yourself think. I have a small piece of the actual audio clip from this personality profile concerning this match. This audio clip came at the end of the profile, and it includes comments from both Ron Wright and I. And uh, Brian, if you'd like to play that, I think fans will really enjoy hearing a little bit of this one. Like this, six months or six weeks on the side, and now I just I want to get the man so much, and I want that match like I've never wanted anything. I've never put up my hair in a match before, and uh, like I say, I don't have a lot of hair, but what I have means a lot to me, brother. And I'm not going to have it shaved off. Come Friday night, we're going to see what that man looks like under that mask, because when it's over, baby, I'm going to be the winner, and uh, you're going to have to take that that hood you've been wearing for 12 years. It's going to be taken off for the very first time. Well, certainly we're advertising three big main events in Knoxville Coliseum, but it's right. Les, uh, I don't know where to start, Les. Uh, I had a match with a man last night. Uh, uh, I got, I, I've been had a few times in, since I've been in wrestling, but I've never been had like I was had last night. And uh, I wanted a match. God, I want any kind of match with him, but but he just flatly refused. There was no possible way I was going to wrestle a man. I tell you right now that they had films. Thank goodness they had film of that match last night. And it's gone now to St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, less, uh, the National Wrestling Alliance is, is certainly, if nothing else, is certainly a representative of the people. And I can tell you this one thing for sure, that I'm sure once they look at that film, they're going to see that the man that I took the mask off of was not the assassin, by golly. And, uh, let me tell you one other thing, about this is for sure the National Wrestling Alliance is not going to allow it. And I can almost guarantee you that it won't be for the next week or the next two weeks. As soon as they come to a decision, that there won't be an assassin here because they will suspend you, man, and you'll be out of the state of Tennessee. Now, like I said, I wanted to arrest him. I didn't care what the news was, but they said no. So this man right here, and Les, let me tell you something, buddy. A lights-out match. I don't think there's ever been one in Knoxville. There's no rules. There's nothing. It's just Ron Wright against that man. It's as if there was no match, right? I mean, it's, it's after everything else is over, the people can go home. They can stay. It's whatever happens. If there was no building, no people, no rules. Les, that's with. right. We couldn't get the National Racing Alliance to sanction a match with him, but he will be there Friday night, and he'll be in a lights-out match with me. And if any of the people that don't like seeing Ron Wright wrestle dirty, when they turn the lights out, they'll have to take for children and leave because I intend to be the Ron Wright of the used to and settle this with Obviously, Brian, we were live in the studio for this profile. You could tell by the crowd noise that was normally not there for personality profiles because we usually did them in the morning before anybody came in the studio. I thought this one was different and very good because it had that crowd's reaction. They watched some of that match, and they uh, they really responded tremendously to uh, to what had gone down. The third match on the television show was Tommy Siegler versus the Inferno. It was a great match with two great workers. Obviously, Siegler got the win. He went straight to the desk to watch a video the night before where he had wrestled Bob Armstrong for the Southern Heavyweight title. This match was exactly what I wanted on my first three Coliseum shows. Two scientific wrestlers having a classic clean match for a championship until the very end of it. Uh, Bob got himself disqualified to save his belt. And after the commercial break, Siegler had his say. He he, he's, he went to the desk, and after the break, he was a— uh, he was going to get that return shot at Bob Armstrong title the following Friday in the Coliseum. And uh, 
Again, we're really lucky. We've got the actual interview that he made on that day about uh, what happened basically between him and Bob Armstrong the first time they had met and how he was planning on handling the second go-around. And uh, Brian, if you'd like to, like to, let's listen to that one. From what happened last night, I'm sure you'll be changing your offensive strategy going into Friday night. Well, Les, I'm really at a loss for words to explain that. That thing caught me completely off guard. I told the people here last week, Bob Armstrong is a friend of mine. I always thought Bob Armstrong was a gentleman. I know he's a top wrestler, and why he did that last night, I don't know. I still think there's a place in, in sports for sportsmanship. I intend to go in the ring next week as a as a wrestler, as a type wrestler I've always been. But I'll tell you what, I'll I'll just be on my toes and be watching for anything because I, I know that, that Bob Armstrong is not taking any friendship into the ring. Well, Tommy, we want to wish you a lot of luck, and I know that anybody deserves to wear that title belt. It's certainly going to be you. The last match on TV was Robert and myself versus Don Lambert and Chico Cortez. It was our first ever tag match on Southeastern television program and only our second tag ever at Southeastern Wrestling. Crowd went nuts when we came in the studio. We had a good match and did lots of tagging in and out as well as working the same body parts. Uh, we went to the set right after the match and waited through the two-minute commercial break. The crowd never got quiet during this two-minute commercial break. In the last interview on the show, Robert talked about changing partners from Ron Wright to me and mentioned the upcoming Lights Out match with Ron Wright and the Assassin. And uh, here is a brief piece of that 1975 interview. Uh, and if uh, fans are ready, I think uh, they will enjoy this one too. Robert, you're in a tag match with your brother against Norvell Austin and Rock Hunter. Yeah, they slipped a new partner in on me. I, I'm going to say this before I get into that about Ron Wright being in uh, this Lights Out match. I'm going to wish him all the luck in the world. He's normally my partner. Everybody knows that. I want to say this for the people's benefit in Knoxville. They've been real good to my brother and I, and uh, they backed us up all the way, and I think the only way we can repay them is putting this Rock Hunter and Norvell Austin down real good. Austin and I, and I have had our problems. And we're going to get them settled Friday night. One thing we want to mention about the Lights Out match is that the lights will be turned off as if the matches are all over, but the lights will be turned back on again, and the match that will take place, Ron Wright and the Assassin, will be non-sanctioned by any alliance. It will be what will amount to be a street brawl. That's right. And, of course, wrestling tonight in Morristown, Tennessee. But don't forget, Knoxville City Coliseum, Friday night. We hope you'll join us. Well, it was another great TV show. It also fell in that critical November Arbitron and Nielsen rating period that I was so focused on. I knew that the WBIR people were as well focused upon that book in November. They wouldn't see it until December, but you have to do whatever you're going to do to get those numbers in November. I expected after this program to have the biggest crowd yet in the Coliseum six days later. Well, we're going to have to see if this program produced that big crowd. But first, let's take a moment to listen to a word about the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 23 with Dr. Tom Pritchard. Super Studcast number 23 is still red hot and being applauded worldwide for its extensive information revealed about the sport of wrestling at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Dr. Tom Pritchard's knowledge of the sport baffles fans and they love it as he answered patrons' questions in part two. This is an exceptional three-hour Super Studcast and should not be missed at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. The Stud's web 
website at tnstud.com is very busy for Christmas. You can still get photos for $15, t-shirts $24, and the fantastic Continental Lost Territory 5-pack of DVDs with over 12 hours of great matches for only $39.99. And that includes free shipping for all items. Shop today and purchase any of the items we mentioned by December 15th, and you'll get them before Christmas. To see the selection of great gifts, go to tnstud.com. Click on the stud store and bring the stud home for Christmas. There you hear it, the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 23 with a man that we can call a legend of Knoxville wrestling, a legend of Southern wrestling, and even Houston wrestling. None other than Dr. Tom Pritchard. You haven't lived yet until you hear the disappointment in his voice when Ron asks him about the body donnas. Check it out today, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. We'll have more about it later in the show. But Ron, where are we going to now? Well, I want to give everyone the results of the November 14th, 1975 Coliseum show. We've got the TV. Uh, they know what was on the television program. And uh, now we're going to find out what exactly happened on that night that Andre was there. Don Wright beat the Inferno in the first match. Les Thatcher had a great second match with legendary Sputnik Monroe. Les won. Uh, this card had everything, as I said earlier, something for everyone, from Lady Midgets to Andre the Giant. The third match was a very unusual Southeastern Wrestling Ladies Midget match. Remember, this night had a free picture of Andre the Giant for the first thousand kids under 16. It was the perfect night to give those kids a midget match, something else to seek sink their teeth into and to start them make fans out of them so that they're going to drag their parents in the future, come down to the Coliseum and see a lot more of these. Uh, This midget ladies match was that special match that we could really enjoy. And boy, those kids really did enjoy it. I watched the match and heck, I found myself being drawn into the story being told in the ring by these two older veteran ladies. Uh, They were great. This match accomplished everything and more than I had expected it would. The fan favorite, Darling Dagmar, won over Marie Laveau. The midgets were followed by the giant. Andre took on two big men at once by himself. As we talked about a second ago, he was still young at this time and spent some time before the match working out high spots with Tony Peters and Don Lambert that highlighted his strength and ability to move in the ring considering how big he was. And he actually could do a lot of things that people didn't realize. Uh, But they did when they watched this match. He actually drop-kicked both of these guys and then piled them on top of each other for a double pin on the finish. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I'd never seen him drop-kick. And uh, when he drop-kicked one, he went over the top rope and out of the ring. He drop-kicked the other. First guy was coming back in. He just piled him on top of the one that was on the mat and did them both in. Uh, It was a great win for Andre. I was like, wow, I didn't expect to get that good a match out of it. But Andre really did surprise me with what he put into it. What was the next match on the show, Ron? It was a return match for the Southern Heavyweight Championship with the champion Bob Armstrong against Tommy Sigler. The match the week before had gotten a little testy toward the end as Bob started to get away from his straight wrestling that he was doing with Tommy uh, during all of the match. And at the end, Bob managed to get himself disqualified, and Sigler mentioned it on the audio clip we played earlier. This time, they wrestled in a special 30-minute time limit that Bob Armstrong had demanded before the match started. 
uh, he got in the ring and kind of changed the rules. And, uh, you know, they announced it as 60 minute and Bob complained and said, no, this is just going to be a 30 minute time limit. I'm the champion. I will not spend 60 minutes. And, uh, so Tommy complained about it, obviously, uh, when it was announced, you know, that, Hey, this is going to be a 30 minute time limit. Uh, they had words face to face in the middle of the ring before the match started to set up what was going to happen. This time, they had a completely different match than the week before. Armstrong quickly became the heel, and fans really got behind Siegler. Everyone was standing for the last five minutes as Siegler went for pin after pin. Uh, Armstrong left the ring with his belt after the time limit ran out on Siegler. But uh, it would be quite a while before he would return to Southeastern. But when he did, he would become one of the best baby faces in Southeastern's history, as he had done in so many other territories before he wrestled in Southeastern this time. And Siegler left the ring more over than ever, and that's a sign you're in there with a great worker. And that match was a perfect example of what a tremendous champion could do to make a star out of anyone he wanted to. Bob Armstrong was that tremendous champion. And Tommy Siegler was not that difficult to make a star out of, but uh, they had a fabulous match and really, really set the tone for the rest of the evening, I thought. Did you already know that you wanted Bob Armstrong to eventually come in full-time? Well, you know, I always uh, admired Bob's skill in the ring and how good a worker he was. And uh, obviously, when I bought and this territory of Southeastern and started it up, He's the he's the perfect babyface. He's the guy I would have wanted. Yes, you know. I mean, uh, you couldn't get a much better babyface or heel, for as a matter of fact. Turns out uh, later on with Continental, he's just as good a heel. But uh, yeah, you know, I he would he I would have liked to have had him full time. I got him for two of these Coliseum shows. I'm actually going to get him for all three of these Coliseum shows, but it's going to be a while before I can get him anymore. He's actually working on the other side of the state for Jared. So, uh, you know, and Jared and I aren't swapping talent as much as we were before. And uh, I felt lucky to have him on the card. So I was glad to get him, period. The next match, Rob and I went to the ring with a fantastic wel- welcome. Uh, Rock Hunter and Novell Austin obviously got just the opposite from the fans. The fans were in this one from the beginning to the end. Norvell made us both look super during the match. He was such a tremendous worker, Norvell Austin. Both Rob and I had wrestled him so many times before. This match, we knew exactly how to get over with high spots. Uh, that it's going to explode the building, and he knew the same thing. Norvell didn't mind making us look good because he was always capable of getting his heat back fast when he wanted to. I did two spots with him that night that rocked the building. I picked him up for an atomic drop on my knee. We had done it many times before. When I went behind him and picked him up, I set him on my shoulders. His back rested on the top of my right shoulder, and his, he held his feet straight up in the air. I never had a guy do that before. I was able to hold him with just one hand. So I put the hand around his waist. He's on top of my shoulder. He's got his feet up in the air. I walked him around the entire 20-foot ring till I got to where I wanted to be, turned him toward the ropes, and I dropped him for that knee drop uh, on onto my knee. 
And uh, when I did, he went flying over the top rope on the Coliseum floor. The crowd exploded. And uh, so later on, I sold for him some. And then I shot him into the ropes. I, I took a tackle. I dropped down on the next one, leapfrogged him on the next one, and then drop kicked him right in the face with both feet. And for some reason, maybe it's Coliseum and then Coliseum. I'm, I'm all fired up. I'm wanting to get over. I'm wanting to give these fans everything they could possibly w want to see. Uh, my body was higher than his head. I had to drop kick down to hit him. Uh, he went backwards. Yeah, I actually did. I had to drop kick. I had to lower my legs or I was going to drop kick over his head and miss him. Uh, he went backwards. He went over the top rope. He landed on his back on the Coliseum floor, and he slid 20 feet because he was all sweaty. It was toward the end of the match, 20 feet on his back and underneath the first row of ringsiders. And, uh, God, that was another big pop. I mean, the building just went, whoa, the roof was just about to come off. It was one of the best drop kicks I'd ever done. And I got one of those, ooh, from the crowd, like you get in Japan. It's about the only thing you get in Japan is that, ooh. But, uh, you know, I got that. I got it in that building that night. Uh, there was tremendous heat on the finish. Don Carson came down at the end of the match to try and cause Robert to lose. This was done to continue the program with Robert. They will be coming back again the following week and the week after that. When that happened, I started to get involved in it, but Hunter brought out his brass knucks, and uh, he opened me up. Uh, uh, so I'm bleeding. The two of us would be coming back to the next Coliseum in a brass knucks match. So I'm bleeding before it's over. Uh, Norvell and uh, and both uh Carson and Norvell are, are beating the hell out of Rob. I mean, it, it ended up being a wild match on the end, and the fans were just going nuts as they had been doing most of the night. The next match was the much-anticipated two-ring battle royal with 7,000 of the winners. Fans were ready for this one. I mean, they'd been ready all night. By the time everyone was in ring one, the crowd was standing as Phil Rainey called the names of the contestant, contestants and explained how the match was going to work. Everyone who had worked the show was in the ring, except for, like I said, the Lady Midgets, Ron Wright, and the Assassin, who's going to be in the last match, which is a lights-out match. Battle Royals were great for creating and extending programs between wrestlers. I love to have Battle Royals because you could do so many things in there to highlight programs that you wanted to work and, and with two people, four people, whatever it may be. Uh, this one was perfect for me and Rock Hunter to go after each other since he'd already blooded me up in the match right before it, and we would be in a Brass Nucks match the following week. The same thing happened with Don Carson and Robert. They were, they were being single matches against other opponents the next week, but also back in the ring a second time and another $500 for five minutes challenge. After a wild battle royal, the last four in the ring for the money was Robert and Andre on one team and Don Carson and Norvell Austin on the other. Both heels had Robert bleeding and were about to win in the middle, a lot of false finishes, just barely kicking out. And finally, Rob makes a really hot tag to Andre. When he did, the roof came off that building. Andre got rid of Norvell. He slammed Carson. He splashed Carson. Then he tagged Rob, who came in, and <laughs> and he laid down Andre. Rob just fell through the ropes, and Andre just drug him over there, put him on top of Carson. Referee counted out Carson. It was a spectacular two-ring royal that built 
perfectly toward the next Coliseum show. So many matches are going to come from that battle roar. Is Robert happy to be in Knoxville at this time? Yeah, he is. He's having a good time. Uh, He's working some for Jerry on nights when I wasn't able to use him. But he was getting a feel for living in Knoxville. He had never lived there before. It's such a beautiful part of the country. He got into it pretty quickly. And he's going to like it even more because Jimmy's going to be coming back in a couple of months. And, you know, it's going to be a it's going to be like an old an old uh, family affair there, you know, with all of us there at the same time. And uh, so, yeah, he, he really enjoyed he really enjoyed Knoxville. The last match uh, of the night was just that for the assassin. <laughs> it was literally the last match. It was a lights-out match that I described earlier with all the special announcements about it, about it before it gets started. Ron Wright got a fabulous ovation when announced, and the assassin uh, got uh, more booze than anybody during the course of the night. Uh, when Rainey announced the added stipulation to match, by the NWA that the winner got the shot the following week at Jack Briscoe's NWA world title, everyone in the building cheered. They had a wild lights out match with Ron Wright bleeding all over the ring, but holding on to win the title shot the next week. I had managed to get as much out of the assassin as possible with a short notice. He didn't give me a very long notice. I got to beat him myself. The, the week before, with my fuller leg lock in the middle of the ring, this night, Ron Wright's going to beat him in the middle of the ring and be set up perfectly for the world title shot the next week. The next day on TV, the NWA is going to send down their decision on the hair versus mask match from the Friday before. The Assassin's going to be suspended indefinitely from Southeastern Wrestling by the National Wrestling Alliance for not removing his mask after losing to me the week before in the hair versus mask match. The original Assassin, Jody Hamilton, would never, ever return to Southeastern Wrestling again. You would, of course, use him in Pensacola, but did you ever try to get him back to the original Southeastern again? Yeah, I think probably a little bit, but gosh, Brian, to be honest with you, I had such an influx of talent start coming in in 1976 that that I really didn't need him. Uh, gosh, I, I had so many tremendous, tremendous heels, and uh, we're going to start seeing some of them in the next couple of stud casts, from, like from Tor Tanaka and uh you know, it's it's just going to be we're going to be loaded with good talent, and uh and I I didn't really uh, go after him much, but I I wanted him once I got to Continental because I'd started my studs table, and I wanted a big huge assassin type guy. I didn't use him as the assassin there. I used him as the flame, and uh, you know uh, he does it. He's such a great worker, Jody Hamilton, a great worker, you know, but. Uh, uh, I didn't really have the spots for him. Uh, I didn't need him. So I really didn't go and pursue him like I had done the first time when I was really in need of great talent. You would have this announcement on TV that the NWA suspended him for not removing his mask. Do you worry at all about, even though you have something that works for the angle and that you can keep things going, do you worry about not delivering on that stipulation if that would hurt the fans or hurt the attendance or hurt anything with the promotion? You mean if he hadn't have been suspended? Yeah, for, I mean, well, even if he had been suspended, you know, they expected to see either hair or a mask. They didn't see either. Even though you had a plausible reason and you explained it on TV and it fit within the context of what was happening, the NWA suspended him. 
Do you worry about the fact that you didn't deliver on the stipulation at the show that it could hurt things? Well, I was somewhat concerned about it. Yes, I was, you know. But, uh, you know, I found out later, Brian, that uh, we we had so many matches later on in which we had – mask guys that uh that we we took their mask off but we had guys that would wrestle and put up and uh and put their you know their their future on the line basically with southeastern and say if i lose i'll leave and instead of leaving in those circumstances they come back with hoods on with different names on them gosh i got more heat from for heels doing that than I, than I ever dreamed that I would get, you know? So in a way, it's the same process, just in a different way. You know, uh, you get beaten and lose a leave. You come back the next week, you put on a hood, and uh, fans hate you more than ever because they know who the heck you are. They recognize the body. They know who it is, and everybody else does. But until that mask comes off that guy, he's not going to be in trouble. So, you know, we... We did a lot of strange things, uh, and, you know, uh, I would have liked to have personally had him probably take his mask off, but Jody was really funny about that. He didn't want to do it, and uh, I thought we came up with the next best way of doing it and suspending him, getting him in the NWA. The power and the ability to do that, I think, made a lot of difference, and uh, I think it made everyone respect the National Wrestling Alliance a lot more uh, by the way that we did it. Is there anything you could have done? I mean, if you had banned photographers from ringside, if you had given him a bigger payoff, is there anything you could have done to get him to remove that mask on his last night in Knoxville? It could have been if I had pushed for it, uh, you know, but I, I was I knew Jody for, for a lot of years. I worked with him when I first started, me and my brother in 1970 for six months, had a long program with him and Tom Ernesto, and I knew that their feelings about their masks. They were they were not like other mask men. They they weren't going to take their mask off, uh, and they were never going to allow you to take their mask off. They wouldn't. Them, I don't think I ever saw them anybody even get it off, and they put some towel over their head or something like that. I mean, they just didn't go that far. And uh, I wasn't really surprised when I told him it's going to be a hair against mask, and then you're not going to win. That he didn't want to take his mask off. So. I had to figure my way around it. I did the best I could, and it actually worked out pretty good for me. Well, how did things work out for you that night in Knoxville? What did the show draw, and how did you pay the wrestlers? Well, we had the best crowd yet in the Coliseum. It was uh, 4,200 fans, around 4,200. It was over 4,000. First time we'd been over 4,000. Average ticket price was, again, about $4 per person. Gross gate of about 16,800. I paid 28%. And I didn't take a payoff because Andre was there and he and Vince McMahon Sr. were going to get more than anyone else from this payoff. And uh, and I wanted the guys to make some money on this card and I want them to be happy about the Coliseum events. The bottom guys, Sputnik, Don Wright, the Inferno, the two midget ladies, Don Peters, Don, I mean, Don Lambert and Tony Peters and the two referees that I had on the card all made $130 each. The next level was Bob Armstrong, Siegler, uh, Robert uh, Hunter, Norvell Austin. They all got 320 each. Ron Wright and the Assassin got 400 each. And Andre got $800. And Vince Sr. got 200 So it, that that payoff to the was the same thing that Vince and I had agreed upon. He wanted 6% of the gate. He wanted Andre to have 
four-fifths of the payoff and him one-fifth. And uh, so that's how it broke down. Andre got that 800 and Vince Sr. got $200. Uh, and it totaled exactly the 6% of the gross gate. And uh, that's what uh, he and I had agreed on. And, uh, and I felt uh, comfortable with sending it to him. I appreciated having Andre. I got along great with Vince Sr. He was a man of his word and uh, never had a problem with him in all the years that he allowed me to use Andre. Do you pay the female midget wrestlers or do you pay Moolah? I paid the wrestlers. I never sent the money to Moolah. I paid those girls. I assume uh, knowing Moolah, they they had to account for what they got paid. Oh, yeah. And she got her money. Uh, I never, uh, she never said, Ron, uh, don't pay the girls, uh, send that money to me. So I paid the, the girls. And, uh, and if she had asked me, I would tell her, uh, you know, what they got paid. So. You know, she was going to get hers. And, uh, you know, so Vince got his and Moolah got hers that night. <laughs> so just for comparison's sake, 6% of the gross goes to Andre and Vince. What percent of the gross would go to the NWA champion if they were in town? There, usually it was like 8%. Okay. And, uh, and they didn't, uh, they did not, I did not cut it this way for the NWA. I didn't pay the NWA. I paid the champion. Uh, and the NWA, I don't know their arrangement. I don't know how that worked. I never asked, but, uh, you know, uh, Sam let me know that, you know, Ron, it's a, it's 8% to the champion and he didn't say it's whatever to the NWA. So I paid the champion and, and whatever the champion's arrangement was with the NWA was none of my business the way I looked at it. Uh, so, but I, it, it was a little higher for the NWA than it was for the Giant. And I'm not so sure that the Giant wasn't a better draw sometimes than the NWA champion, to be honest with you. So on this night, what matches did you film for TV? Because you always do that. And any lessons, any big takeaways from this night? Obviously, it's the biggest crowd you've had. And the gross gate was pretty big, although because you have to pay 6% to Andre, it's probably not as impressive as it may have been if you didn't have that big payoff. But what are the big takeaways from this night? Well, let's start with the videos. We shot several matches. You're right about that. And the reason was because I was expecting a good crowd, and it was in the Coliseum. I really wanted the fans out there that watched the TV program to experience what it was like to be in that huge building and to watch and to hear Southeastern Wrestling, hear a Southeastern Wrestling event. Uh, I, it, I needed that. I wanted to do as much as I could, as much video as I could, because I wanted fans to sit in a TV to hear all this tremendous crowd reaction and really, really get into it. And uh, that's going to make them want to come buy a ticket. We recorded the tag match with Robert and I against Hunter and Norville and the entire two-ring battle royal and the lights-out match with Ron Wright and the Assassin. We're going to use those the following week for sure. As far as my takeaway for the night, uh, I'll never forget the sound of the crowd. It seemed like 10,000 people were in there that night uh, rather than just over 4,000. I don't know exactly why, whether it was the fact we were in the largest public building in the city, the Coliseum. Uh, I don't know whether it's because of the fantastic matches, the excitement of the giant being on the card and people seeing the giant, or just the fact that we were beginning to make real fans for the future. I can't put my finger on it, but the sound of that crowd was what really, really got me. Uh, the building was just over half full, and I couldn't hardly imagine what it's going to sound like full. 
And at this time, in Southeastern's early days, I never dreamed that in less than 18 months after this night, fans are going to be hanging from the rafters as we're going to break the all-time attendance record for any sports event in the history of that Coliseum. And that's a record that still stands today. It's never been broken. Let's end today, uh, Brian, with another classic Andre the Giant story. <laughs> you know, uh, his love for the Waffle House was legendary by the time he finished wrestling. I mean, I, I, and I went early to pick him up the next morning. He had to fly out. I only had him for one night, and uh, I was going to take him to the airport. And I had to do TV. I had to be at TV fairly early, so I went extra early and picked up Andre. And uh, uh, then I had to ask him, uh, where do you want to eat? You know, I wasn't really familiar with Andre's love for the Waffle House. And, uh, boy, he it came right out of his mouth, Waffle House, Ron. You know, like, uh, I, I was like, the Waffle House. <laughs> thinking, wow, I mean, <laughs> what is that all about? Anyway, there was a Waffle House about a half a mile away from the hotel. So I'll take him on the way to the airport. We stop in the Waffle House. And what happens in that Waffle House is really, truly amazing. Uh, I love telling this story because uh, it's no one no one can do what he did in, in, in a Waffle House. Uh, we go in the Waffle House, and when Yandre goes into any building, any room, anywhere, everybody in the place is going to see him. And everybody stares. We sit down at one of those booths. I can't hardly get in there because Andre's his side. He pushes the table over toward me. We sit in one of those booths, and the lady comes, and she pan passes out the menu, the waitress. Uh, she comes back in a minute, and uh, I so, so she asked me, what do you want? And I, I don't remember what I ordered. It was probably a waffle and some eggs and some, uh, you know, some uh, ham or just bacon, whatever it was. I ordered a normal meal, basically, and a large milk or whatever. And uh, then she looked at Andre, and she says, what do you want? And he's holding the menu, and he says, the menu. <laughs> so I'm confused. And she's confused, too. She goes, uh, uh, you have the menu. <laughs> so he says, well, and then she says, what do you want? You have the menu. What do you want? And he says, uh, I want the menu. And she's like, and she looks at me, and I can't really figure out what he's talking about either because I've not been in the Waffle House with him before. And uh then uh, I finally look at him and I say, uh, Andre, uh, what do you want on the menu? And he says, I want the menu, Ron, front and back. And it's like, and then she, she looked at me and she goes, he, he wants the, what do you mean he wants the front and the back of the menu? And I said, I think he wants everything on the menu, both the front and the back, breakfast, dinner, lunch, everything you have. And uh, she was like, oh, my, what a look on her face. She, so she walks off, she orders it, and they start bringing this food. Uh, they bring his, start bringing his, they start with breakfast, and they end with dinner. And he eats everything. It's unbelievable. We were in there for more than an hour, uh, and that's usually a 10-minute, 15-minute thing in a Waffle House. And it was just, oh, I could not believe that he could eat what he ate that morning. And uh, just uh, 
I knew then, you know, I never want to take Andre. I'm glad I wasn't buying his bill. I think his bill was well over $150 at a Waffle House. So you've got to be eating a lot of food, spend that kind of money at a Waffle House, especially back in 1975. But uh, that, that this tore me up. My Waffle House story with Andre is one I really, really always love to tell. How do they handle you? I mean, if they're making all this food for him, how long do you have to wait for your food? I told her, I told her uh, she she kind of recognized that you know it's going to take a while and and they and she was taking plates off and trying to put new plates on and that was the problem they didn't have much room for me to put my plate because the table was full of Andre stuff so she got uh, I guess to about lunchtime in his in his in filling his order and then she brought mine and I ate on a little piece of the table off to one side and they just kept kept taking dirty plates and empty plates and bringing full ones. And it was a process of, wow, I bet everybody in that place saw what was going on. They were all just blown away, obviously. Uh, they couldn't believe it any more than I could that man could eat that much food. Well, Ron, as we wrap things up this week, I want to remind everyone on Facebook, the page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. Just like that page, and boom, you are automatically friends with a wrestling legend. On Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter, at Great Brian Last. The Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network is on Twitter, at Super Podcasts. Once again, we want to remind you about the latest edition of the Super Studcast. Super Studcast number 23, parts 1 and 2, are now available. A memorable three hours with... Dr. Tom Pritchard. Everything from him having to cut off his curly hair to him being hung by the dirty white boy to starting out in Houston, Texas. We cover a lifetime in wrestling on this very memorable edition. Check it out today, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 gets you in the door. Ron, where are we going to next week right here on the studcast? Well, we're going to have the third straight and the final Coliseum show on the first year of Southeastern Wrestling, uh, the following Friday night. Uh, this one's going to be headlined by the NWA world champion, Jack Briscoe, and he's going to be facing the old East Tennessee brawler himself and fan favorite, Ron Wright. He's got his work cut out for him, Jack does. <laughs> I can tell you that it's not going to be the type of wrestling Jack is accustomed to another record. Nine matches and all are going to fill out the November 21st, 1975 card. We're going to describe the third great TV show of November, 1975. And, uh, we're still out there. I'm still out there trying to impress that new end in the new WBR TV executives that gained the momentum and attention of Arbitron and Nielsen and continue to blow the minds of fans all across the growing southeastern area. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. 
This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>